Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you are watching us. And thank you for being part of the Material Business Podcast and being here with us. Today, I have a really special guest. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So Florent graduated with a master's in materials engineering from STEAM, now is the Polytech Nancy in France, and a PhD in material science from the Imperial College in London, UK in 2005. He worked as a postdoctoral assistant and as a research scientist for four years at the Center for Electrochemical Science and Engineering at the University of Virginia. He has been at the Southwest Research Institute, San Antonio, Texas, since 2009. He's been involved in different aspects of corrosion research and development during his career, from studying the corrosion properties of novel aluminum, aluminum, I don't know how to say that word anymore, <laughs> for wings, uh, wing skin to evaluating materials for high temperature and pressure turbine applications. His original focus was on hands-on experimental work, but he has expanded his interest using environmental modeling tools, development of high-pressure, high-temperature test facilities, and improvement of large corrosion data collection and storage. For over five years, the focus of his work has shifted to supporting the corrosion needs in transitioning towards more sustainable technologies. Florent, it's impressive and it's very interesting to see how in how many different areas you were able to work and how it evolved kind of in your career, uh, all these aspects. Uh, when I reached out to you, uh, it was a very cool article that had a very cool name and I said I want to talk to you about that and I want the audience to talk to you about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and what is being that modeling for the environment on Saturn moon? Listen to that guys, Saturn moon, we are not talking about that, uh, anything boring here. And how those tools can be compared to what we do here to analyze corrosion? Yeah. So the best way to start to explain that is a little bit of a story time on how I ended up getting involved with that type of, of work. So working at Southwest Research Institute, there's a lot of people who do a lot of things and including some work on um, space science. And through different internal meeting, I ended up pre, um, connecting uh, with somebody in our space science group called uh, Charity Phillips Lander. And she, is been, she has been doing some work funded by NASA to look at the impact of organics and different ions on uh, the freezing temperature and the phases present in ice that are expected to be found on those uh, ice cap of ocean worlds and Enceladus is one example, Europa is another example. Um, at the same time, for years and years, I've been supporting a corrosion group with thermodynamic modeling software. And the way I use it is to actually model the environments 
that we are testing. So sometimes it can be really hot environment inside an autoclave, high pressure, high temperature. We can't really measure the pH in there. But using these tools, we can actually back calculate what would be the pH at ambient pressure and ambient temperature, where we can actually measure that. Um, and so talking with charity, what I uh, realized was, well, the same type of tools could be used, except with very low pressure, uh, temperature, but to potentially look at um, the environment that she was looking at. So we got to talk about that. Uh, she was really interested in discussing this because there are limitations to the tools that are being used by the uh, space science community. One of the limitations was to actually include organics. So they were able to model things with sodium chloride, with potassium chloride, all of this in there. But organics uh, was a huge barrier that they weren't able to cross. So I just turned on my laptop and put on the software and asked her, okay, send me the list of what you're working with. I'm going to see what I can do with that. And so I realized that there is a bunch of organics that were in the software. After that, I also talked with the uh, provider from the software and they told me that actually they do have integrated in there some extrapolation uh, of temperature to go to very low temperature. We're talking minus 50 degrees Celsius at least. And the reason why they do have some of the organics in there is because they do have some data thermophysical data on organics. So after that, running some calculation, I got back with Charity and we talked about uh, what I was finding versus what she was seeing in the lab and um, some of the effect of organics that I was seeing in my calculations was actually what she was seeing in the lab. And, you know, that was really interesting because it's a software that I primarily use for oil and gas application, but it is a tool that can transition to help resolve other problem. And looking at it at a much higher level, at the end of the day, when we work with corrosion, it is the interaction of materials with the environment. And using the software is looking mostly at the environment. And the way they are, what they are trying to solve on these uh, planets, on these moons, is an environmental question. And so it actually kind of makes sense that potentially that expertise, that knowledge that we get can transition to that. And so right now what we are doing, uh, we presented some of those results. There was some pretty good response to it in front of the space science community. There was some pretty good response to it. And our next step is to try to actually get some funded work uh, with a goal to actually improve the modeling of those organics, because we know, and the vendor of the software also is very much aware of that, that there are limitations to what we can do with, uh, with that software, but there are ways to make things better. And so the end goal is figuring out whether um, we can model the environment in a way where we can prove that there are some other spaces. So at low temperature, having some bubbles, basically some vapor bubbles inside the ice where life could potentially exist. And so they're doing a correlation with 
uh, some of what they're finding in Greenland, for example, where they do a study in the ice over there and looking at the presence of bacteria and so on. So, yeah, it's on paper, it looks like it's a huge leap to go from corrosion to uh, supporting finding of life in space. But looking at the expertise and knowledge and tools being used, it is actually not that big of a leap. Wow, it's so amazing. And I know I have, probably, you know, Alec Broisman. He looks at corrosion from every aspect, you know, music and uh, politics and not only materials, but now you're talking about an extra level is like, how can we support a field that in our mind will be so different so completely out there and it is possible by using tools that we use in our day to day so it is amazing the power of collaboration i guess absolutely i think that if we are looking at the problem of corrosion and that's a, a little bit of uh, going on a sidetrack here but looking at a lot of the problem of corrosion in the world uh, we are really uh, a passenger um, in a lot of those technology problems, um, whether we're talking about development of a bridge or development of a, a, a plane or a pipeline or whatever, at the end of the day, corrosion usually is not the primary problems that needs to be solved. It is not, nobody builds a pipeline to solve corrosion. And so, we are here quite often as corrosion engineer and scientist as a support to make sure that things are actually going well. And in this case, it's taking the same approach. It's being there as a support to that team while looking for potential um, environment that can support life to help them answer some of those questions. It is, it is very amazing that we are able to find those links and then help other scientists uh, accomplish things. It is amazing. So you've also been involved a lot, and we said that when we did the introduction on sustainability and sustainability projects. Um, could you expand a little bit on the significance of the term sustainability? I know we've... Um, this is this is a la mode right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just finished COP twenty eight. There were a bunch of things that were there, but like really for us, uh, materials corrosion. Like, what can you can you tell us about it? Mm -hmm. So again, I'm going to start with a little bit of a story. I just always think that it's a little bit more interesting that way. I love stories, and it's it's, it's um, so. Uh, now it's been nearly seven years ago. Um, a colleague of mine from Southwest Research Institute uh, named Erica Maka, who I I've met her when she was doing a master at the University of Virginia. I uh, was a postdoc and years later, she started to work at Southwest Research Institute. And so every now and then we were having lunch together. And at some point about seven years ago, 
during those lunches, we started to talk about what we wanted to do uh, in terms of, you know, what problems do we want to solve? What do we want to be involved in? You know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of us who end up going to grad school, um, it is because we want to be involved in big problem. We want to, we dedicate that time earlier on in our career to be able to actually do something we love and we want to do. So we are talking about this and uh, we really agreed on this question of climate change. You know, we need to do something. What can we do as corrosion engineers? And um, starting from there, uh, there was a lot of conversation because, you know, we're corrosion engineers. It's even though we do have the same expertise on paper as people develop uh, batteries, and in a way, it's not really a forte. You know, we deal with accidental detrimental electrochemistry. They deal with controlled electrochemistry. So it's it's kind of different. We live in chaos. They live in controlled um, power in a way. And so we were going through a lot of these and renewable energy and and we also went through some of the conversation about you know what is sustainability, what is um, all of that. And I feel like I still see very regularly those conversation about. Uh, in the corrosion community about let's define what sustainability is. Having worked in a lot of different projects related to sustainability, I think that people kind of have an idea of what it means. It doesn't need to be defined. It's just too complex to be defined. We can spend, I think within the corrosion community, we could spend two, three years on trying to define what is sustainability for us. Um, but that's not what we should do. I mean, we should work on actually, again, supporting the, prob the problems, the corrosion problems of technologies that are solving this. And we're wasting time in trying to really put the term sustainability in a box. I think we just need to accept the fact that roughly it is now kind of solving the problem of climate change by making things better and not destroying as much. And that's kind of the general idea. And there are different technology that deal with that. Some of them people think that it's not actually sustainability, like carbon capture. It's not, some people are actually starting to get really against that. I, in my mind, it's still within the sustainability because it still helps to solve uh, that problem. But in a shorter sentence, uh, answer, I don't think we need to care that much about what is sustainability. We just need to deal with it. We all have a general understanding of what it is. And I think that's, that's good enough to uh, work on the technologies to solve it, to reach it. It is great what you're saying. Sometimes we get so tangled into the details because we are engineers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then we, if we do what we are supposed to do, like if we manage assets, if we control corrosion with anything that we have right now, 
enhance without going and do something extra. We've already reduced the amount of consequence that that corrosion is is producing. Mm -hmm. So we'll just exact I love what you said is we just need to work with what we have, make it happen, regardless of the definition per se. Mm -hmm. And with some of the work that I've been doing, um, supporting folks who are developing um, new ways to create energy, especially mm -hmm. using machinery, quite often what I've realized is quite often to actually help uh, those cleaner um, technologies to work or to make some even existing technologies uh, more efficient and reduce the output, uh, amount of greenhouse gas being released. We need materials that just work better at high pressure, high temperature. And uh, one of my colleagues once told me, you know, if it wasn't for you uh, material folks, we would be able to do great things. And, <clears throat> you know, in, in a way, we within that area of machinery energy production what we need to do is already been established we need to actually be able not only to make materials that uh, are able to handle higher pressure or higher temperature uh, from a mechanical point of view from an oxidation degradation point of view and we need to make sure that they're reliable and that's I mean, that's a huge problem, but again, I think that we don't need to spend time on talking about what is sustainability from the point of view of corrosion when there is that gigantic problem that is already there. And, you know, for some of it, it's, we don't even have the ways to test them, those material at those conditions. And so, there are a lot of things that can already be done. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, sometimes we're looking for problems where we have the problem in front of us. So if you need to mm -hmm. solve it, if you want to yeah. solve it, sometimes the solution is already in hand. It's just improving the way it is done, managing it better, mm -hmm. and then it will definitely. Excellent. So can you share some um, of the projects that you have been involved that perhaps help on that on that area yeah um so like i was saying earlier on one of the interesting aspect about working at southwest research institute is that it's big it's three thousand people and it is people working a lot of different things uh, so people working on automotive some people working on fuel, some people working on space science, on chemistry, uh, some people working on things that I am not allowed to know. And <laughs> so there is a lot of different type of work that is being done. And um, at one point earlier on, I decided, well, let's reach out to those people internally. It's just easier than trying to actually build an entire new network outside. And they're quite often more easily reached just by booking a one hour lunch together. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. And I talked with some folks that are in um, 
fuel, lubricant, and automotive. And it turns out that um, when people are looking at um, electric vehicles, it, there are a lot of things that are changing. Some things that do not change. I mean, a tire is a tire. I'm sure that people who work on tire would be able to tell me, actually, it's not quite the same because you've got different torque and so on. But there are other aspects where um, corrosion could potentially be an issue. Uh, and so once you, once you put an electrical engine in there, right there, you're changing the materials that you have. It's not going to be the same as an internal combustion engine. So for example, you're, go you're potentially going to have a lot of copper. Um, and also because some of the requirements, you know, now you really need to take into consideration the, the power that goes through this copper, some of the, the liquid that are there uh, needs to be different. And, you know, often when we think about liquids in a car, we're thinking about the fuel, we're thinking about the oil in the engine. And we could imagine, well, in an electric vehicle, you don't have an engine, you don't need oil and you don't need gas, but you still have a lot of parts that are in motion. And so you'd still need a lot of lubricant, but those lubricants need to have slightly different parameters. Uh, you have different materials. And so some of the questions that exist there is, well, how do those materials behave with those um, new oil and new lubricant? And so that's some work that I've done. And that's actually interesting because those lubricant, those oil, quite often are not very conductive. So a lot of the tools that we have at our disposition, especially electrochemical techniques, they are becoming very difficult to use because of the very low conductivity. So there are ways to work on this and, uh, you know, the, we can either go back to the traditional way of using mass loss or uh, looking at other techniques to be able to do that a little bit better, trying to play around with electrochemistry. But that was one of the programs that I've been involved in a few projects. Um, another one kind of related to biofuel when uh, th there is a lot of potential for corrosion to happen, for interaction with material. But what I've looked at is on the process side. So a refinery, we're talking about high pressure, we're talking about high temperature. The environment is very different from traditional refinery and actually quite more aggressive. And people are also looking at a lot of different um, product that can be refined to make a biofuel. So we're talking about whether it is uh, waste or whether it is uh, refining plastic or um, <clears throat> using soy and corn. And all of that just bring a lot of different complexity to uh, the problem. So we've done some of that work and we're still doing some of that work, evaluating some uh, materials in those high pressure. So we're talking about over a thousand PSI. So over a thousand PSI, I have a table next to me just to remind, remind me that's a, above 70 bar and um, temperature going up to 450 C. 
Uh, and so that's, uh, we're pushing the availability, the ability of some of the tools that we have, but we've been able to do that. I've been doing also some work on the other end of the biofuel chain, looking at ethanol fuels and um, that are mixed with standard fuel and working on both the corrosion of materials with this. So that's when they're in tanks, for example, on a truck or things like that. And working also on doing analysis with some of our colleagues here of the degradation of the fuel. So when you, when it is at fairly high temperature, so 30, 40 degrees Celsius, uh, how does it behave? How does it change over time? Because it will corrode with the materials, but can it actually change as well? How will, how much water will it absorb? And so, yeah, that's a, the biofuel has been another thing I've worked on. Um, one thing I've been really excited about, I was talking earlier on about energy production is uh, some work on supercritical CO2. So we have a pretty big group here that does uh, machinery design and a lot of really exciting work, uh, a lot of mechanical engineers. Um, <clears throat> I'm learning a lot on a lot of new things that I never thought about before. But anyway, about, I don't know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, they started to do some work related to supercritical CO2 at high pressure, high temperature um, to create energy. So the idea behind it is replacing the thermal medium that you would have in a turbine with supercritical CO2. So for example, you have a turbine um, that traditionally would have steam making a turn. You put supercritical CO2 instead of steam and behind the, the idea is that you get a higher efficiency. You can have a much smaller turbine for the same power output. And so I started, I had kind of the best project ever to start in a new area. Um, one of my colleagues there, who's now the, the director, um, was working on a big project they needed to do some material testing and he asked me to basically do the literature review of uh, what materials they could do based on uh, their properties in supercritical CO2. So I got paid to actually read a bunch of articles and do a literature review, which is great. Uh, it's a great way to uh, get in there. And so through the years, we developed a, a test facility to do some fairly low temperature uh, pressurized supercritical CO2. So that was about 450 degrees C and just above uh, supercriticality, so 1500 PSI. And CO2 becomes supercritical at 1100 PSI and at uh, 32 degrees Celsius. So that allowed us to create some data and um, we are doing that through internal research. But we're actually still doing the, using this setup now, which was kind of a crude setup, but we're still using it to test some uh, materials, some for some magnets for uh, magnet bearings. Um, another thing that's been really exciting is 
through working on smaller projects with these folks, I got involved into a bigger DOE, Department of Energy project, with the goal to develop an oxy-combustion turbine. So the oxy-combustion turbine uh, requires using supercritical CO2 with some other things in there and having it work similarly to a gas turbine. So it's going to, there's going to be oxy combustion in the turbine that makes the turbine turn. So it's different from uh, a steam turbine. One of the big, big challenge from my point of view and from the materials is that they have a maximum temperature of 1150 degrees Celsius at 4,500 bar. So let's put that about 300 bar, uh, 4,500 PSI, so about 300 bar. And uh, I got involved into the project to do some material testing for that. Um, if you've ever looked at ordering any type of high pressure, high temperature, test vessel, they don't go anywhere close to that pressure and temper at temperature. So we've been working on developing a, a system that where the design is similar to the concept is similar to a nuclear reactor. Instead of heating from the outside, having the entire vessel able to handle the pressure at test temperature, we put the heat zone on the inside and cool the outside. So we put an induction heater inside an autoclave while the autoclave is being cooled actively from the outside. So the autoclave itself is inside a, a water bath, which is a crazy idea. And it's been really difficult to do that, um, but We've been able to uh, reach about 300 bar with the highest temper temperature we measure in there, about a thousand degrees Celsius. The main problem is that the thermocouple we are using keep all the work related to that. I think that we actually reached 2000 degrees Celsius at pressure uh, inside, which at this point is becoming interesting to going back to the space science community because it gets close to planetary formation, temperature, and pressure. Um, so that's exciting because we're the only people in the world able to do this. Um, it is really R&D. It's a lot of extremely complex problem to solve. My boss now told me the story that um, I can't remember his name, who was running the Skonks lab, who apparently had this saying, only um, one miracle per project. I think in this project, I've asked for a little bit too many miracles to happen. But um, looks like it's, it's going there. And uh, so that's really exciting because it goes back to what I was saying earlier on. There are challenges that already exist. Uh, we don't have to care about what is the actual definition of sustainability. We already have enough to do right now. So yeah, that's that's kind of it. And uh, I mean, there's been a few other stuff um, 
working also on the carbon capture and well transport and sequestration where uh, we've got a history in doing some of that and we're working on getting more of that there's been like it seems everybody we're doing some work on hydrogen however uh, early on it's something that made the decision to not really get too involved in that which um, may not be the smartest decision in my career based on how much money goes into hydrogen but uh yeah colleagues of mine are were already doing it and it was getting a little bit crowded i didn't think and i had quite the expertise needed to really improve things it's amazing i, I was just listening to everything that you said and if you would have been one of my, you know, if I would have listened to you talking, like you're talking right now, when I was in university, I would have been like, oh my God, I am in the field that I need to be, you know? And now I'm listening to you 20 years after my, my being in this, in this field, and I still think the same. So it is so uh, inspirational because the problems are always there. And then I have people said, oh, it's this, this field of corrosion has never evolved. And now listening to everything that you're saying, it's probably not the corrosion is evolving, but it's the kinds of problems that we get to solve, mm -hmm. the kinds of uh, challenges that we are able to contribute to those are the things that change so yeah the phenomena will might not change however the way we act and what we do is what it is evolving yeah i think that it got a little bit more interesting for me once i've decided to accept the fact that I would probably never be the most important person in a room doing a meeting ever because I mean, the goal of a plane is to fly. It's not to not corrode. Mm -hmm. The primary role of a plane is to fly. The primary role of a turbine is to produce energy. At the end of the day, as corrosion people will help people achieve their goals, but we're probably never going to be um, the most important person in the room. And if we are, I think if we are the most important in the room and we want to solve problems, we probably shouldn't be in that room. Definitely. It took me years yeah. to try to gain enough to, uh, I guess, be humble enough to stop trying to just lead things yeah that's a that's a very interesting point of view so we've seen the evolution until now where do you see this going forward like how can we go what is what is the the next um step in, in this in this realm what do you think oh um i I think that there are two problems that have really been bugging me over the last few years. And, you know, unfortunately, they're actually not, let's say, purely corrosion problem, but 
Um, the first one is about communication. And years ago, I, uh, when I was first starting to try to, uh, when we were having those conversations with Erica about finding what we could do with climate change, I realized um, fundamentally the communication problem with climate change and corrosion is exactly, is extremely similar. Basically, we're trying to convince somebody now to take an action on something that will happen in 10, 20 years. And if they are taking the action, they will not see the problem. And so it won't tell them that their action was successful. So that is one issue. And another one is most likely the person we try to convince now is somebody who will not be in a position where if it does happen 20 years from now, they will be impacted by it. They may not even know it. And <clears throat> I think that it goes back to trying to be a little bit humble is that if we enter a room and we are that person who made the decision, more than likely, they're probably, they probably won't know too much about corrosion. Our role as a corrosion expert is to make sure that somebody who does know very little about corrosion, understand it and realize why it is a long-term problem that needs to be addressed now. And it is, I think, uh, it is something that is starting to connect with psychology about uh, communication of high-risk problems. And uh, it was interesting, I actually reached out to a professor earlier this year who deals with that and has done writings, has written some uh, paper on psychology of risk communication related to climate change. And we we're talking about that. And I was kind of glad to hear that she thought that the way I was talking about corrosion, it, there was a lot of similarities. And that, yes, there are ways to transmit that and there are ways to make a big mess at trying to explain to people that corrosion is a problem. And I'm not entirely sure that as a community, uh, we're doing the best that we could to get that, um, that idea of corrosion being a big problem across to the people that actually make the decision. Uh, the people, we, you know, we, somebody once told me, you know, all you guys start your proposal and paper saying the cost of coercion is 5% of the GDP every year. And 25% of it could be saved if uh, proper coercion management was done. It's a huge money. It's a huge number. And yet people are refusing to fund a 50K program. If that's that big of a prime, why don't they want to actually fund it? And I think that we can blame as much as we want the person who makes the decision, but it is our role to actually communicate that properly. And if they're not making the decision to fund this type of work, well, it is without doubt a big problem. 
it's I don't think it's on them. I think it's on us. It's us who are not doing a good job to explain that to them. Uh, maybe we come into the room thinking we're just going to throw equations and that's going to work wonders. We're just going to throw some photos of a Maslow's coupon and they're going to believe us. I mean, I don't think it has worked the best it could so far. So probably it's us that need to change that. So that's, yeah, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is like everybody's talking now about artificial intelligence, um, neural network, and that big data and all of that. And I think that we can see clearly at conferences that a lot of people want to do that within the Corsian community. And I, th I think that there are, there are huge potential of using those techniques. However, I think that the main problem in the Corsian community right now is not the development of those models. It's having the data required to make those models useful. And um, we cannot make um, a neural network or artificial intelligence work with 50 data points. We can't make it work with 100. We can't make it work with thousands of tens of thousands. Um, when we're looking at some of those data set that exist out there to train artificial intelligence, uh, some of them have million, tens of millions of data points, and we don't have that type of uh, data set that exists in the community. And even if we could potentially have them, there is no, there is the just the beginning of an effort now to actually create them because it needs to have data coming from a lot of different places and. It's actually kind of exciting to see that people are finally talking about that uh, and coming to a realization that the data is needed and nana, the data needs to be combined in order to get that. So I think we're with this, with artificial intelligence, we are jumping to the results quite often and forgetting what is needed uh, beforehand. I think it goes back to also, you know, what we're talking about uh, right at the beginning. It's about collaboration. It's about working with folks that are out there. I mean, everybody needs everybody, not everybody, but a lot of technologies can benefit talking with corrosion experts. And, but it also means that we need to go and talk to them. Absolutely. And you're touching in two points that we have been saying, I think, in every podcast, collaboration and communication. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be very uh, the root of many of the things that we could do better. So, Florent, we are at the end of the podcast. Thank you for your time. It's always fascinating and it goes so fast. And after I start 
listening to what you guys have to say. I always want to stand for three more hours, but um, thank you so much for being uh, with the audience of Material Business, for sharing all that, uh, all the knowledge and your work, um, amazing work. Thank you for for being an ambassador. Thank you for coming and, and saying everything to, to our audience. Um, do you have anything like last closing sent to, to people that are listening to us? I think the I think it goes back to well at least for me right now, it goes back to uh, remaining humble with the expertise that we have. We shouldn't expect just because corrosion is a prime, we shouldn't expect everybody to come to us. Um, having that type of knowledge and expertise means that if we really want to solve some of those problems, we should be the one going out there and reaching out to those people. Like I was saying, the first role of a plane, first goal of a plane is to fly. And we have to make sure to tell those people that it would be great if it didn't corrode too quickly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, communicating humbly. Oh, that's that's a really good closing sentence. Yeah, humbly. Florian, mm -hmm. thank you again for your time, for your you know abundance of information and inspiration for everyone that is listening. I look forward to, to having you again, um, maybe with some other more exciting things as they develop. And uh, for everyone else, we'll see you in the next uh, podcast episode. Stay tuned and thank you for being part of the community of Material Business. Thank you.